So about uh, three summers ago, we had um, a bunch of college students in our backyard who are also camp counselors in the little camp and conference center that my family and I live in, this neighborhood that's there. And um, they're all gathered together, and we're having tacos, and it's a fun time. And, and several of us, um, several of the college students and I are sitting around a dinner table, lunch table, eating out. Um, and um, they're college students, sort of our, they're our future, right? Budding minds. Uh, encountering all sorts of new ideas for the future and trying to grapple with that. So I, I start to mention um, a name who was becoming pretty popular around that time, which was, uh, with, had a not a little controversy surrounding sort of his thoughts. And I, I just sort of threw it out there and began to talk about it. And there was one person that began to engage me sort of as a little bit of pushback as I brought up that person's name. Well, in the midst of that little impromptu conversation, one by one, one of the college students gets up and leaves, and then another one gets up and leaves. Another one just sort of gets up and leaves, and they have this kind of like deer-in-the-headlights look on their face, and I kind of realized, I think I had just stepped in it. Um, I, I think I had just pulled the pin and threw it, and I didn't know, but in that moment, I, I think it was sort of a precursor for what we're beginning to hear more and more often these days among sociologists and students of culture, that when it comes to certain beliefs or convictions that you might have, there is an increasing sense in which you are unwilling to voice those private beliefs publicly. That in an earlier day or in other settings, in a different season, you might have talked about any number of things that might have brought forth a lot of deal of disagreement or even, you know, consternation, maybe even heated. But now it feels like some of the stuff that you might openly admit to, you kind of don't want to go there because you've seen what happens. You put out an unpopular or a controversial idea and you've seen the pylon. In an earlier day, maybe, maybe we had a greater capacity for good faith disagreements about things and matters of consequence, but now that has sort of shriveled and what has come to replace it as an increasing impulse to react, respond, and retaliate. And therefore, it is highly likely that in many venues, many public venues that you are part of, it's quite possible that whatever private or public beliefs or convictions that you have, you are less likely to identify with them publicly. Keyword, identify. To articulate, to associate, even to mention, you are less likely to go there. Now, that, I, I kind of made it sound like this is a new phenomenon. This, this situation, this circumstance is as old as time when it comes to identifying with certain public certain private beliefs in a public setting. And I would think that that idea is actually at the center of a moment that is famous, even to those that have no storyline or no sense of the storyline of Jesus. What does it mean to identify? We're going to listen to a famous moment. It goes by pretty quickly, and it's on the night before Jesus faces his darkest hour. And on that night before Jesus faces his darkest hour, Peter steps into his. And what made it dark came everything, had everything to do with whether he would identify with Jesus. And his struggle is ours, no matter what season or circumstance you're in. So we're going to listen to these several verses, and we're going to consider identification in three ways. The place for it, the problems in it, and the power for it. The place of it the problems in it, the power for it. 
We're in Mark chapter 14. We're going to kind of skip around and listen to what happened to Peter. I wonder if you might stand as we read. Starting in verse 29. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are moments in the life of Jesus that sometimes show up in only one of the gospel accounts. And yet there are other moments that show up in two or more, two or three. And then, and then there are moments that show up in all four. Newsflash, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all four. Shocking, I know. But there is another instance that shows up in all four gospel accounts also, and it's this one. And it's curious why all four of the gospel writers would include it because let's just call it what it is. It's really bad press. If you're a PR rep, you leave this one out. This falls on the cutting room floor. It looks bad for Peter, and, and let's just call it what it is too. It kind of looks bad for Jesus. Like You really haven't developed the kind of alignment with your vision that you might have hoped to. Everything is on display. Nothing is held back. And what do we see in Peter? We see his weakness. Now, let's be careful here. Let's give him credit where credit is due. It's only Peter that we learn of who is following behind Jesus at a distance. It's only Peter who ends up entering into the temple courts. It's only Peter who is warming himself by the fire of the high priest. And it's only Peter who even gets into a conversation with anybody. So don't dunk on Peter too hard. You can't necessarily or unequivocally call him a coward. But in that moment, what we see prominently displayed and ironically displayed because he's the one that will say, I will die with you before I deny you. But in that moment, we see his courage fail and his courage 
to fail to do what? To identify with Jesus. To even acknowledge him. Now, let's be clear on what identify means. In this moment that Peter has, he was not being called upon to explain Jesus. He was not being required to make some sort of case for Jesus. His moment afforded him this opportunity simply to say, yep, I know him. Yep, I'm with him. Yep, I'm for him because I believe he is for me like no one ever has been. That's what the moment afforded him, but in that moment, he couldn't or he wouldn't. He wouldn't identify. He wouldn't associate. And I think that's what gets us to what the first thing that we're meant to learn from this moment about what is the place of identifying with Jesus in the life of following. And the simple answer to that word, it's central. To identify, to associate, to even acknowledge his place in your life, it is both straightforward and natural and normal. That's the experience of believing him. Um, let's be clear. It's, identification is, is not grandstanding. Um, with, with apologies to those of you in the room for whom this is true. Uh, how do you know if somebody's an atheist, a vegan, or does CrossFit? Because without asking, they tell you, right? There's, um, watch as people get up from the room and leave. Um, what Peter is called upon in that moment is not to grandstand. It's not to put something on his shoulder. It's not to do, the, the, the phrase has already gone out of style, uh, I think it's from about 10 years ago, called the Jesus juke, where, where somebody will bring up something that has absolutely nothing to do with anything, and some Christian will find it reasonable to kind of bring in, like, some dude's telling you that he's changing his oil, and, and you say, oh, that reminds me of a parable of Jesus, right? You know, like, stop it. It's not about, it's not about grandstanding, it's not about a Jesus juke, it's talking about an inner sort of posture, in which you, you don't feel any hesitation to try to conceal it if it's appropriate. You don't feel the need to kind of say, I wonder if they'll ever know and how will they respond. I mean, the text is prominently about Peter's denial. So um, why, why include that uh, if, if, if we're not meant to show, if not meant to see that identifying with him is some sort of central place in the life of following him? Look, what friendship do you have that you enjoy, that you relish, that you take great pride, that they are part of your life? What, what relationship do you have that you enjoy that in private, but when you go out publicly, you, you treat them as like, I don't even, who are, who are you? Like, that would be weird, right? That would be nuts. It would, it would be an exercise in, in dividing your heart. One of, one of my famous profiles and courage moments from my childhood was I was out with some buddies on a 4th of July night and some of them had illegally obtained fireworks, right? Because I'm living in, you know, suburbia of West Houston and we're out riding after dark and, you know, one of my buddies, I'm on a bike and they're on foot and one of my buddies, he fires off some of these little sparklers and yada, 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 we're <laughs> are we being funny? And so apparently somebody caught wind of that, saw that, and, and I ride ahead on my bike, and just around that time, the popo show up with uh, the red and blue lights, and they pull up, and they, and they catch my two buddies, and I'm, you know, like 50 yards away, and I'm circling back, and, and as I see the policeman talking to my two friends, asking them where they got the fireworks, I ride by looking at them like I don't even know them, like, <laughs> like, 
who are these hooligans? Um, thank you for taking care of their shenanigans, officer. You know, in that moment, it's like, oh, great. Wow. Talk about loyalty. We laugh. Because that's what kids do. But in this moment, Peter has divided his own heart. And he's refused to allow anyone to know that he knows him or that he is known by him. And that is an exercise in, in word, and it's also an exercise in deed. Um, you know that moment in a Christmas story where uh, they're all out at the frozen pole and, and Flick, their friend, is dared into putting his tongue up against the pole? I triple dog dare you, and he does that, and then he's stuck, and then the bell rings, and then everybody goes back inside, and then this happens. Where is Flick? Has anyone seen Flick? Flick? Flick who? He was at recess, wasn't he? Ralphie, do you know where Flick is? I said, has anyone seen Flick? Yes, Esther Jane. Oh, my God! Kids are amazing at their ability to enjoy each other's company and form bands and, and blood oaths and all that good stuff. And then as quickly as the bell ringing, they can turn on each other. And that's what kids do. And the other fortunate thing about kids, though, is that they don't bear grudges for very long sometimes. What you see there in miniature, and I know it's almost to trivialize it, but the place for identification with someone you love ought to be central, both in word and in deed. I mean, look, kids, um, if you see somebody that's of whatever minority status being bullied or beaten up, and you don't step in to defend them because you don't want to be outed as somebody that knows Jesus or something like that, then, oh my gosh, that takes so much extra effort of your heart to protect yourself in that moment. And in that moment, Peter's going there. In the late second century, there was a bishop of Smyrna whose name was Polycarp. They went by one-word names back then. The phone book was a lot thinner. And he was hauled before the Roman authorities and called upon with the other Christians to declare that Caesar was divine. And Polycarp said no. And he was recorded to say this, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no harm. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? When he was pressured, when the fire was turned up, he would not hide. He would not conceal. Why? How? Stay tuned. That's the third point. I still have to do the second point. The place of identification in the life of following Jesus, is central. It's natural, even if it's hard. So let's, let's talk about what makes it hard. Let's talk about the problems. Um, 
The ironic part of the passage is just how fiercely Peter denies that he would ever deny Jesus. But the most prominent part of the passage is, of course, what he ends up doing, and that is deny Jesus. How he responds when he is asked. And there's this maid or doorkeeper of the high priest, and, and, and she's out there in the temple courts, and she sees Peter, and she goes, I think you were with him. And Peter, in as many words, says, I don't know what you're talking about. And he starts to feel the pressure, and so exit stage right. I'm going to go out in the courts where she's not there. Well, what does she do? She follows him. She follows him. After Peter has already heard the rooster crow once, which for him, apparently, it does not register in the moment. That's funny. It's late at night, and there's a rooster crowing. Bizarre. She follows him, and she is around a bunch of crowd that are warming by the fire, and there's Peter, and, and she says to them, I think he was with them. And again, he denies it. I don't know what you're talking about. And within a few moments, the bystanders who have been tipped off by this maid, this doorkeeper of the high priest, they go, no, I've heard you. You were with him. If, if the, the, the overlap between Russian and Ukrainian is about two out of every three words are shared by both languages. But it would take about two sentences for somebody to realize you're not from around here. And in this moment, it didn't take long before they could pick up on the accent, the dialect, the inflection in Peter's voice, and they would say, you're a Galilean. You're not from around here. And what does Peter have as his defense? Clearly his assertions that he does not know Jesus are not working. So what does he do? He does the only thing he has left. He invokes a curse upon himself, something on the order of, may I be dead by the morning if I know him. Imagine going to those kinds of lengths to deny your connection with someone you love or who loves you. Imagine that. And once again, what happens? The rooster crows. There's a reason that Henderson City, there's an ordinance against having roosters. They're all sweet and cuddly between about zero and six months. And then at six months, the first time you hear that thing go off at 5.30 in the morning and starts mistreating the hens, you know, that doesn't belong here. I'm in trouble because it's shrill, because it's unsettling, because it's disturbing. And in that moment, he hears it. Here's the problem. In that moment, what is Peter most concerned about? Survival. He knows if, if Jesus is up in the temple courts right now being questioned in anticipation of his death, if they're coming for him, they're coming for me. This is a matter of survival. i got to protect myself. And look, friends, there are people and churchgoers all over this globe in many places this hour who have to be very strategic about how public they are because they know it could mean something far worse than an eye-rolling. In that moment, survival was on his mind. But there was also something on his mind, too. The shame. The shame of one who had commanded authority and packed crowds together and everybody had started to speak of him with a certain admiration. Oh, surely he had ticked off many, but most were like, this one is different. And now this one looks like a fake. He's been picked up, hauled off, and now he is being labeled 
a failure, a false Christ, an enemy of the state, a blasphemer, a loser. And in that day, you and I have very little concept of this, the idea of actually being shamed by the one that we formerly wanted to follow. When, when Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he's not talking about some sort of generic shame. He, he knows, as was then, you, you followed warriors. You even followed warriors who died in battle, or you followed kings who led massive armies. You never followed an executed criminal who was meant to be held up as a deterrent and as a curse before all people. The problems associated with following Jesus and in identifying with him is for some it's survival, for others it is shame. You and I have no concept of that. Even, even if you are in this room today and you have a certain respect for Jesus, or even if you chuckle at the idea that he actually rose from the dead, you still have a certain respect for him. You still have a certain assumption that there is a certain nobility that hangs over his head because he was persecuted or whatever, and, and you have been made to think that that's a noble thing. It's because you've been shaped by Jesus even if you don't believe in Jesus. In that day, it was a shameful idea to follow one who was of that character. Now, that was their reasons for shame then. We have our reasons for shame now. And sometimes those reasons for shame are on the basis of certain arguments or certain prevailing attitudes that kind of exist out there. I mean, there's the argument that you will hear some people say, you listen to a voice who has his origins in the Bronze Age. Isn't it time to update <laughs> your wisdom? It's sort of the argument from chronology. Have you not listened to anybody you know, newer than that? How dare you? How can you listen to a voice like that? Shame on you. Sometimes you have to answer some of those arguments with responses. And, and, and one of those arguments is, look, the idea of dignity, that you have value or worth, regardless of your name, regardless of what you've done or haven't done, regardless of your history, regardless of your 401k, all of those things that you might you know, index to yourself as meaningful or valuable, where does dignity come from? Well, because... I just know that I do. Well, who are you to say so? Well, we all ought to ascribe dignity and value to one another. Who, who said that? Where do, you, where do you get that? What, from nature? Well, it's just self-evident that we all have dignity and value. By what evidence? Look, you want to talk about an old idea? Here's an old idea. Anybody that's alive is made in the image of God. And their value, their worth, their dignity are ascribed to them because of that. Even if they waste everything and fail at everything, they still have that because it was given to them by God. Look, if you discard that, what will you use to replace it? Another reason that you might feel a certain shame? Why do you Christians... Why, goodness gracious, why can't we all just get along and just say that all paths are equally valid, they're all the same? You're being so exclusive is the argument. It's sort of the argument from pluralism. And look, there is respect and wisdom 
and reverence to be found in many faith traditions, all faith traditions. But when it comes down to the question of exclusivity, you know what's going on there when they lodge that argument. It's just another version of exclusivity. That argument is just dividing up the world into two. Those of us who believe that all paths are valid and you folks that believe one path has a certain uniqueness to it will exclude you from us. It's just another version of exclusivity, just on different terms. One more. There are those that say, how can you walk in a tradition that has wrought so much damage to the world and ostensibly in Jesus' name? What do you do with all of the things that those within the church have perpetrated to the great harm if not destruction of others. What, what, what's your answer to that? The short answer to the question is, mea culpa. There is damage that's been done. And yet, if you'll listen closely to the critique, usually the critique they give of the church uses a certain standard of that critique. And what's the standard of that critique? Jesus. The critique of the church is by the standard of Jesus. That sounds more like identifying with Jesus than arguing against him. Look, this is not a sermon on apologetics. This is not a sermon on uh, identifying reasons for belief. But I will say to you that a lot of the times, our reasons for shame or apprehension about identifying with him are less about the arguments and more just about how we will be seen. Let me borrow a line from, of all people, Charlie Darwin. You know what Charles Darwin said is his observation of humanity? He said this. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. People are passionately concerned with the praise and blame of our fellow men, obsessed with their reputation. Can I get a witness, Charles? That's what animates all of us. I don't like to be seen as foolish. I may not really have a good argument for why I might be apprehensive, but I do know this. If anybody starts to look at me funny and starts to look at me with, you know, squinting eyes and things like that, I don't like that. There's the rub. That's the problem. You and I, mea culpa, I don't like to be seen in a certain way. And that might make me feel apprehensive. But that's the problem in identification. It's the one that we could define. But let me, let me take us to a very sobering little sidebar here. There's a problem in identification from Jesus' point of view. And it's, we've got to rewind the tape back to Mark 8.38 in words that he himself says that maybe are the most sobering words we might ever hear Jesus say, that maybe part of us makes our skin crawl when we hear it. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In that moment, you might be tempted to interpret Jesus as being huffy or, or as the kid who says, it's my basketball, you know, play by my rules, I'm going to take my basketball and go home. But if I may unpack it for you just in a way that you would never dream of it. I just, this, this whole scene came to mind as I thought about this a couple weeks ago. Do you ever see Grease? 
Did you ever see Greece as a young kid and then you got a little older and you saw it again and you thought, I can't believe my parents let me watch that. <laughs> I can't believe Mrs. Snelling in the second grade put that on the turntable and let us listen to Grease Lightning. Oh my gosh. But if you don't know that story, kids are going, Mom, can we go see this? Um, <laughs> I didn't recommend that. Some loving happened so fast, right? You know, Danny, Sandra D, Sandy, they have, you know, a summer fling, whatever it might have been. They, they high school, lovely, right? And then she, they thought, was going to have to move back to Australia. And then it turns out, no, no, she's staying put. And they are actually going to the same high school, Rydell High. And in this moment, there is the reunited, oh, it feels so good, with um, Sandra D and Danny. And watch what happens when they are reunited. This love, this, this bristling, beautiful, young love that has come to be cemented. Look what happens when it comes out into the open. Hey, look all. I got a surprise for you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Sandy! Teddy? What are you, what are you doing here? I, I thought you were going back to Australia. We had a change of plans. I can't... Well, that's cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is, rocking and rolling and whatnot. Danny? <laughs> that's my name. Don't wear it out. What's the matter with you? <laughs> What's the matter with me, baby? What's the matter with you? <laughs> what happened to the Danny Zuko I met at the beach? Well, I do not know. I mean, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe there's two of us, right? <laughs> why, why, why don't you take out a missing persons ad or, or, or try the yellow pages? I don't know. <laughs> You're a fake and a phony, and I wish I'd never laid eyes on you. Whoa. Whoa. I wonder if she Cut carries silver right. bullets. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. So she laid her eyes on you, eh, Zuko? Mm. <laughs> Summer loving happened so fast, and... His love for her whatever it might have been, turns as soon as he feels the searing light of his buddy's eyes upon him. And because of the shame he feels from their eyes, he becomes ashamed of her. I know it's a musical. But in that moment, you see what's going on here. If he would be ashamed of her, he can have no part in her life or in her love. It is a choice whether you would prefer the acceptance of a bunch of searing eyes whom you respect or love the one whom you know even if it doesn't fit with the eyes of those you respect. Then you cannot share in his life or in his love. It's just the nature of it. Jesus is not being huffy. He's just saying, if you are ashamed, remember what shame in that day was. If you think, I, I can never follow one who is an executed criminal. I, I do not follow those who go down to their death who is a peasant. If that's your view of it, then a habitual refusal to apprehend him or acknowledge him is kind of like, how do you share in his love? In the same way that Danny can't share in his love if he's just going to be continually ashamed of her because he's worried about what they think. That's the problem. If that's the problem... And that's sort of a funny, roundabout way of trying to talk about the problem. Well, then where does the power come from? 
The most ironic part of this passage is how fiercely Peter denies the possibility they could deny him. The most prominent part of the passage is actually Peter denying Jesus. What he was sure he would never do, he does, and over and over again. But the most poignant part is the last verse. He's denied that he could. He does it in spades. And then verse 72. And he broke down and wept. He was inconsolable. You ever been inconsolable? You ever been inconsolable because you... You did harm to a relationship that you can't, in that moment, see any way of ever repairing. Uh, again, not to trivialize it. You ever, you ever had to put an animal to sleep? You know when you, when you come to that decision, you, you are acting, trying to act mercifully. And, and you tell yourself that, and then there's part of your body that's saying, you are betraying this animal. And somebody has to win out here. And... I was overwrought for two weeks. In this moment, he is inconsolable. And what we discover is that the power to identify with Jesus, whatever it is, it doesn't exist naturally in Peter. His fierceness was just bluster. It was bluster more than substance. So why does he weep? Did he weep at his own hypocrisy? It's probable. Did he weep at his own weakness? Also very likely. What, what do his tears reveal, though? Something beautiful. Something at work. Something that points us to where the power comes from to identify. Something is being dismantled at the same time that something is being built. What is being dismantled. The famous German atheist Friedrich Nietzsche said this, If a man perceives himself by means of the opinions of others, it is no wonder if he sees in himself nothing but the opinions of others. In other words, look, feedback is great. Real-time responsiveness, that's helpful. That's how we grow. It's why we go to school. No, this is wrong. Nailed this. Work on this. Feedback is awesome. You need their opinion. You need their wisdom. But there is a point in which your dependence on somebody else's and other people's opinions becomes a hostage situation of your own making. You have let their opinions, their focus group, be the determinant for every choice that you make. And when you do that, you are hostage. And there comes a point in which you will never subscribe to anything that is not popular. What is being dismantled in that moment is the supremacy of other people's opinions by his tears. That's part of where the power comes from, is having that supremacy dismantled in your midst. But what dismantles the supremacy? what is now growing in Peter as the motivation for his obedience. There's a lot of things that might motivate your obedience. Some of you think that the gospel is, if I just do all the right things, he will let me into his heaven. That's not the gospel. 
There are some of you who think, I should obey because I'm afraid of being punished. And he, we, we do hear about the fear of the Lord, but that's, that's a misunderstanding. That's a distortion of the gospel. Some of you will think of obedience as a pride thing. I'm glad I did the right thing. Fear, shame, pride, all of those can motivate. There's only one thing that really will last as a sustaining motivation for obedience. I'll let you listen to an atheist. Let me end here with an archbishop whose name is Rowan Williams. He said this, Obedience comes as a result of what is given. It is the search to find adequate ways of showing gratitude, allowing the gift to fill the whole of human identity. What must be the deepest recesses of our obedience? Gratitude. Gratitude for what he's done. Gratitude in the gospel. Gratitude for the fact that Jesus laid down his life for his friends. And though you fail him, his love remains. Though you offer nothing to him that would ever commend you to him, his love is real and he will die for you anyway. We find the power to identify with Jesus even in the face of its problems in gratitude for the gospel. The one who laid down his life for his friends. Look, to be very clear, Jesus is not Sandra D. He is not hurt by your rejection of him. He does not run off in a corner and weep. I can't believe Peter doesn't like me. Even when you fail him, his love remains. Obviously, if he went to the cross so that you could then pay him back for what he did, what was the point in coming at all? You could have done that without him dying. Here's the message of the text. Love identifies. But it identifies with Jesus. Because even when your love gives way to fear, his love remains. This is our hope. This is what drives us. This is where we come from. This is where the power comes from. Whatever small ways you have opportunity to identify with him, remember it's not about making him happy. It's about being grateful for what he did. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are some in this room who may hear these words as I have heard them before from others. Now, now, now I've got to be really vocal and I've got to do all these things and I've got to you know, be very outspoken. And As if that's going to somehow generate your kind of love for us. The, the truth of the matter is we know your love is everlasting and steadfast. And as surely as Peter in that moment was weak, we know that your greatest interest is not to shame him for his weakness, but to rekindle that love in him. And that's why you asked him around that fire, do you love me? Father, would you rekindle in us the courage born of gratitude and of the knowledge that your love is real? 
Would you help us to find our motivation in the gospel and in it alone that they might know that you're good and that they might know that your love is real. In Jesus' name, amen.